Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Woof. Let's hear another whoop for Alicia. There we go. Awesome. Wonderful. Good morning, everybody. Um, as Alicia said, this summer we're doing something called Summer Sabbath. Right, so we're taking a break from the programs, but not from the people. So check out that board. Like she said, there's tons of stuff on there, and my understanding is that most of them are free. Um, so go and get your life there. Um, I'm gonna be standing up today. Check this out. I'm gonna be doing this. Um, I grew up in a Baptist church where the pastor would, like, by the end of the sermon, would be sweating profusely, and there would be people fainted in the, in the crowds and stuff like that. There was a lot of yelling and singing going on. Um, it was really incredible, and I want to invite you all to step into that with me, right? Um, so I do, um, I also uh, read poetry at places, and when you go to a place for a poetry reading, most time what people understand is, like, I'm going to sit here and listen to this person be sad. Um, but... What actually, in the Poetry Slam community, there's hoops and there's hollers, there's AMs, there are AMs, there's amens, and there's, uh, there's yes, there you go, a couple bra, bra, you know, do what you gotta do. Um, so I just want you to feel free in that regard. While I'm preaching, don't worry about interrupting me because you're just feeling it in here. Just let it out, all right, cool. Um, so this past week, um, a lot of stuff has um, happened, and it's been a pretty heavy week um, for a lot of people. Um, due to talks of depression and suicide um, and the people that that interacts with. And one thing I want to do before we start here today um, is that to let you know today we're talking about resurrection. Um, And that's like, it's super crazy that this is the the passage that we're working on today. I think it's very, very fitting for the time that we're in because we're in a place where death seems so prevalent. Um, and it's hard sometimes to see beyond that. But also, if, you're, if these are things that um, you're dealing with in your life, um, and maybe this sermon's going to get a little bit heavy for you as well, please take care of yourself. Feel free to take a step out, right? Um, take a breath. There'll be people out there that you can talk to um, and chill with and come back as you will. All right? Cool. We're going to do it. Let's put up the thing. First Corinthians. We're back. First Corinthians 15, verse 1 to 8. Now, brothers and sisters... I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. All right, so what Paul's doing in this passage here is a couple things. One, he lays out the gospel and he says, yo, this is what it is. Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. He really cuts it down to that simple thing. And then after that, as you can see, he starts to give evidence. He's like, yes, Jesus died and he came back. And guess what? People saw it, right? We're not making this up. Um, In fact, there are people who were there. You can go talk to them. They'll tell you what it is, right? Um, But I am less interested in that 
today. Uh, I'm not really interested in giving you a case um, for the resurrection that had actually happened. There's a really awesome book called The Case for Christ um, by Lee Strobel. Go ahead, read it, do that thing there, right? Um, but what I want to focus on is what really stands out to me in this passage is his breaking down of the gospel. He cuts it down to these three things that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. And what's weird is that he starts at death, right? Many of us have heard of Jesus, right, at least, <laughs> all right? And we know a lot about the stuff that he did during his life. In fact, the stuff that he did during his life was so incredible. It's part of the reason why people follow him. So it's interesting that Paul doesn't start with Jesus lived and did all this awesome stuff. Then he died. Then he was buried and he rose again. No, he says it starts at death. And a little bit of context for you here, when he's talking to the churches in Corinth, this isn't their first time um, hearing this story, right? The gospel isn't something new to them. Um, but what I think Paul is doing here is he's kind of trying to point them back to the simpler times, right? Um, somewhere along the line, things got really bogged down by religion, by theology, by philosophy, all these things, and they're starting to lose grasp of, grasp of what Paul calls the gospel on which we take our stand. So he points back to the simple things. I know a lot of people in here, if you've been Christians for a while, you probably have some of uh, the same feelings or have experienced this before, um, where Christianity, you jump into it because it seems like the simple thing is just kind of like, cool, that sounds nice. <laughs> um, and then it gets really complex. You start reading the Bible. You start hearing different um, interpretations of things and it gets really confusing really fast. And you start being unsure of some things and it kind of gets bogged down. I went to a Christian college where we did biblical studies and I swear um, taking a biblical studies course is the fastest track out of Christianity. Because <laughs> uh, I'm just like, what? <laughs> he said, what? I believe what? Um, and it got really complex. And it was only in the moments where I took a moment and stopped and was like, wait a second, this is why I got into this in the first place, right? That things started to slow down and make a little bit more sense. So Paul's doing this with the people in Corinth, with the church in Corinth. He's saying that um, you've been bogged down by all this complexity. Let me break it down for you. Um, exactly where it needs to be, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. Paul is reframing the gospel in a way that kind of, uh, ref uh, reframing the gospel in a way that kind of exposes all the ways that we're kind of missing the point, specifically about resurrection. Um, resurrection is something that we celebrate every single Easter, right? And people back then, they're also celebrating it, but he's saying there's, you're, you're missing it. Right? So we're going to take a moment and go back here. But before that, before we delve deeper, I guess, I want to start with this. If there's anything that you remember out of all the crap I'm about to say, is <laughs> this. Is that Jesus sacrifices life for you. Yes, even you. That he was buried. And on the third day, he came back and said, the story does not end with death. That's it, right? And now it's about to get more complex. There we go. Um, cool. So Paul's boiling down of the gospel to these three parts, death, burial, and resurrection. I think more so than even pointing to simplicity, kind of points to this pattern of death 
to life that we experience as Christians and as humans. It's in, it's in nature. And throughout the gospel accounts, there's many places where this pattern of death to life comes up. Um, one of the ways, um, one of the stories is of the prodigal son, which many of us have heard. Um, a young man goes to his father and he asks him for his inheritance. He says, I want it now. Um, and that is a really messed up thing to do because obviously your inheritance only comes once your father has died. So he's telling his dad, I wish you were dead. Like I'd rather have your money than have your life right, then have you in my life. And there, I think, very obviously is the mark of death in that. Death, there's a dead relationship that this story starts out with. And then he takes the money, the father obliges, and he goes out, squanders it all, and finds himself laying with the pigs. He loses everything, literally hits rock bottom again, the stink of death. And it's only from that place of death, of emptiness, of uh, just complete loss that he's able to go back to his father and he finds that his father's been waiting for him the entire time. And he says, shut up, come in, we're throwing a party, right? So there's this move from death to life there, both life in their relationship and also life for that son. Another place I see this is in the story of Jesus meeting the woman at the well. There's a young lady who's at a well super early in the morning because no one else is there. And in that small detail, we have the mark of death as well. Because the reason she's there by herself is because she's avoiding all of the other women who come to this well. The well is like the social hub. By coming early, she knows that she's not gonna have to interact with them because it turns out that she is in an adulterous relationship and the community has shunned her for it. So in that, there is again a death of relationship, death within their community. And this woman is a Samaritan, right? There's a lot of political and ethnic things we can get into about that. But specifically what you should know is that when it came to Jews and Samaritans, the Samaritans were understood as lesser, right? They were understood as this kind of like, uh, like half-breed situation, right? Where it was, uh, there was kind of like a corruption that happened inside their bloodline, very Harry Potter. It's very weird. Um, um, and, and Jesus comes to her as a Jewish man, a Jewish rabbi, and points, and, and that in itself, again, points to death in a different way, death in a system, right? Uh, a system of oppression in which um, Samaritans are understood as less than. That's just the understanding of it. Right? That's how people think about this woman. That's how that woman thinks about herself, which is why when Jesus comes up to her, she's like, homie, what? <laughs> I'm over here at the well by myself. What are you doing? Um, and, and part of that is because she doesn't understand a world in which this Jewish man would want to sully his self and his reputation by being involved with her, by talking to her at all. One, because of uh, the reason she's shunned by the community already. And two, because she is a Samaritan woman. And Jesus comes to her and brings life, both to her personally and says, I forgive you for what you have done. Like go on and sin no more. But also he brings life into this ugly, ugly system of oppression that they had at that time, that they understood. And in both of these stories, what strikes me about this move from death to life, this pattern that we see, is that the new life 
mandated a transformation. It mandated that things would not remain the same, right? The, um, the, the dude, the son, <laughs> there we go, the prodigal son, he is, he has to kind of like face all that he is. He has to face that dead relationships that he had in the ways that he had messed everything up and then step into something that was completely different. His relationship with his father and himself and the world completely changed in that story. For the woman, there's also a transformation of self. Jesus says, go on and sin no more. He doesn't say, I forgive you. Now, you know, that's great. You can go now. No, he says, go on and change your life. There is a mandate of transformation in this death to life pattern. And where I think we often get caught up in things is that we get resurrection mixed up with resuscitation. So resuscitation is the bringing back of life, but it's life as it was. Resurrection brings back life and it's completely different. It changes everything. Resurrection changes everything. And I think that we're all prone to these same things because we, we want to change. And then we're like, why do I just keep falling into the same patterns? Why does the same things keep going wrong, right? I move from relationship to relationship to relationship. I ended that bad relationship. Why is the same stuff coming up? Why do I keep getting caught in this thing? And it turns out that in fact, we brought the same self. Right? I, I, nothing about me inside me changed, so I kept the same stuff kept happening in the relationships. When it comes to addiction, and we want to stop in a, a specific addiction, but then we don't change our life around us, we end up just falling right back into it. We backslide, and it makes sense why that happens. Because our environment, the world around us, the way we understand ourselves in that world has not changed. And this is a huge thing that I see when it comes to things like racism and sexism and things, these, uh, systemic, these systemic issues that were like, how in the world are there still people with hoods running around? <laughs> you know, how is the KKK still a thing? How are misogynists still a thing? Why does this keep happening? And it turns out that there's this ugly system. There's like this deep corruption within it but we're not willing to look at that. We're like, ah, oh, you know, we'll change some laws. <laughs> you know, we'll make it illegal to kill someone. That'll fix it, right? We, we do these small changes and we think that we're reviving something, right? We think that we've made some progress and then you run into situations in which people of color are being gunned down by police. You run into situations where sexual assault is such a common topic right? That it's all over, right? There's just like a part of who we are as humans at this point. And it's, and it's so confusing for some people to understand how that stuff's still happening. It's because we're focused on resuscitation and not resurrection. Resurrection changes everything. Resurrection demands a breaking down of all of those ugly things in order to move on to the good thing in order to move on into the new creation. And part of the reason that's hard to do 
is because we're terrified of death. We can't move from death to life because we refuse to look at death, right? Um, Malcolm X has this, um, this quote that I'm gonna butcher, but you're gonna love it. <laughs> um, where he says that uh, racism is like being stabbed in the stomach and they talk about progress as moving the knife a little bit out, right? Getting it further away from your body. He says, that's not progress. Progress would be getting rid of the, getting rid of the knife completely. Progress would be starting to heal that wound. And he says, you guys aren't even willing to admit that there's a knife there, right? We cannot move into resurrection until we're willing to face the death in our life. We can't expect our relationships to change if we don't turn into ourselves and say, well, what's wrong with me? There's like a common denominator here <laughs> as to why things keep going wrong, right? Um, so we have to get... Um, we have to kind of like look at these things. We have to be willing to look at them because death is terrifying, like both in like a metaphorical sense, but also just physically, right? It's like mysterious and like conceptually elusive yet imminent at the same time. It's like, it's gonna happen, but I don't know what happens afterwards and I'm freaking out, <laughs> right? And it's stuff that we don't understand. Uh, Paul goes on to say in chapter 15, verse 12, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. Harsh. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ hasn't been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're of all people most to be pitied. And a little more context here for this. Um, there's kind of a collision of cultures that's happening in Corinth. Right, you've got your Jews, you've got your Greeks, you've got your others, there's a bunch of stuff going on. And there's also these kind of like melding of thoughts in here. With the Greeks come this really rich tradition of philosophy and reason. But also a lot of them are just kind of like, no, he did not resurrect. <laughs> that did not happen. That sounds hella fake. Um, and, and that's happening. And the, uh, the people of Corinth, the churches in Corinth at the same time are like, no, we believe that that happens, but you know, that is kind of far-fetched. I don't really like, it's probably not gonna be like anyone can be resurrected. It's probably just cause Jesus is like this special guy, this like spiritual thing. He's like God, of course God can do it. And what's happening here is that Paul is like, whoa, 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 no, too far, right? If if God, if God is the only one who can resurrect, that doesn't mean anything. He's God. <laughs> like, it's just kind of like our entire thing is based around the fact that he's this a great powerful being. Of course he could do something like that. But if that's not something that touches down to our here and now, then it's useless. If it stays as this conceptual mystical thing, it is useless. If resurrection is just this thing that 
happens to our, our great savior Jesus and not to me and to you and my brother and my sister and that dude over there, then it's not worth anything. Our faith is futile. And I think the issue um, that they run into here is one that we run into all the time. I know that I run into all the time. It's this distance between intellectual affirmation and true belief, right? I can say that I believe in the resurrection, but do I really, <laughs> right? I, I see all these miracles happen in, um, throughout the Bible. I've heard stories, things have happened in my own life, but do I believe they can happen again? Right, so for myself specifically, I've literally seen a man blind gain sight. I have literally seen somebody with a broken arm tear their cast away and extend it completely. I've seen someone with back pain, chronic back pain, stand up tall and do so for years. But I can't remember the last time that I've prayed for healing. Right, I say I believe in these things and in many cases, the evidence is right there in front of me, right? There are so many people who are just kind of like, see it to believe it. God literally put it in front of me and I forgot, <laughs> right? I, I, I literally can't remember the last time that I've prayed for healing. Sometimes the distance between the times that I pray at all are honestly shameful, <laughs> right? I feel deep shame and guilt about that because I've seen the power that prayer can work in people's lives in my own life. My literal life has been transformed by this stuff. And yet it doesn't look like that in my day to day. So my question for you is what miracles have you stopped believing in? What has happened for you or for the people around you in your life that you have forgotten? Because this is what Paul is telling to these people in Corinth. It's like, yo, you forgot. <laughs> this is the reason we do this. He says later on in the chapter, um, he says, what are we dying for? <laughs> we have literally been being put to death over and over again because of what Jesus did because of this resurrection. How can you forget this is the gospel on which we take our stand. But I think that um, if we are to actually live that in our entire lives, we put ourselves into a bit of danger, right? If I were to go around praying for healing for people, I put myself in danger for a couple reasons. One, people would look at me differently, right? It would be, I, I'd honestly feel pretty embarrassed about it. Right? I wouldn't want people to say, oh, that's that guy. <laughs> but also, what happens if it don't happen? <laughs> you know, what if the miracle doesn't happen here? And honestly, I think that's the thing I'm the most afraid of. For every, six, every 50 times that I pray for someone in healing, it happens once. Those other 49 times suck. <laughs> 
right? There's so much death in the world and you pray and you pray and you pray for it and it just starts to whittle down at you. It starts to break, um, break down your reserves, your, your power, your will to do these things. But still, like I think deep down that if 50 times I pray and it only works once, I think that's worth it. <laughs> I think, <laughs> right? I think it's worth it to do that. I think I believe that, and yet I still do not. The people of Corinth are in the same position. The Greeks that are there, they're afraid that it's gonna like take away from the validity of their faith if they believe in the resurrection of people, right? They're afraid of facing this death because it's scary and it's real, and it's prevalent. They're so afraid of it that they kind of, they push it off. It reminds me of um, a book that I read by uh, Wendell Berry. It's called The Hidden Wound. Um, it's, about, it's about racism uh, throughout American history and how it shaped white thought. Um, and one of the, one of the uh, examples that he has is he talks about a slave master sitting in church with his slaves. And he talks about the kind of uh, dissonance, cognitive dissonance that needs to happen in order for that to be a thing, right? Because being in that church, this guy is saying that he believes in an immortality of souls. By having his slaves in church with him, he's saying, yes, you are as worthy of salvation as I am, but I still own you though. <laughs> right? There's something really weird about that connection there. And Wendell Berry goes on to say, to keep this question from articulating itself in his thoughts and demanding an answer, he had to perfect an empty space in his mind, a silence between heavenly concerns and earthly concerns, between body and spirit. If there had ever opened a conscious connection between the two claims, if the two sides of his mind had ever touched, it would have been like building a fire in a house full of gunpowder. Somewhere down deep in his mind, he always knew of the danger and his nerves were always alert to it. So we much like this slave master, intellectually affirm a lot. <laughs> we say we believe in resurrection, but if we actually truly believed in resurrection, it would change, it would tear some stuff down in our lives, right? He says it's like building a fire in a house filled with gunpowder. That thing's gonna explode right? It's going to blow up. There's going to be a deconstruction that happens in the midst of all of this, but we're terrified of that. So we push it off somewhere else. The people of Corinth are terrified of that. So they push it off and Paul comes in and this is my favorite. The part of the reason I love First Corinthians and Paul in general, dude gets hype, right? He's just kind of like, no, you don't get it. <laughs> And I, I love people yelling. It's very Jerry Seinfeld. Um, but he, he's like, of course, of course, if you're going to move from death to life, you've got 
to deal with death, that it's gonna suck. In fact, becoming a Christian means being more ingrained in that pattern. You should be the most aware of that pattern. You should be the most willing to step towards it and say, this sucks. This doesn't make sense. There is a, there's a gap here, but we perfect this space in our minds, as Wendell Berry says, where we can exist and feel fine, right? Where I can intellectually affirm the resurrection and yet not live it out in my day to day, not allow it to actually change me because that change would be admitting some really terrible stuff. It'd be admitting a lot of weakness, a lot of pain that is real in the world. And Christians, yo, we have perfected perfecting that space. We are the kings of pushing everything out up there, right? Um, and, and part of what um, intellectual affirmation does is that intellectual affirmation in itself means to affirm something in your head, in your thoughts, in your dreams, right? It's almost, it's inherently mystical and heady. And we say, well, if you believe these things, like I just get to like cross them off. I believe this, 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 heaven, yay, right? But heaven itself, heaven itself is again, this mystical thing, this place where we get to put all of our problems, right? We don't have to deal with the stuff that's going on here because eventually Jesus is gonna come back. <laughs> He's gonna take me and I'm gonna be out of here. Right? We don't have to deal with these things. A lot of um, Pentecostal circles that um, I was a part of, a lot of churches I went to were Pentecostal, grew up in it. One of the things that we said often was that the world was like a vapor. That the things of this world, the hurts and pains of this world were like a vapor. That it would be here today and gone the next. And what I find is that that thought, that idea was more about protecting us from the things that were going on around us. It was protecting us from the sexual assault that happens in churches. It was protecting us from the racism and sexism that is rampant in this institution we call Christianity that has been in it for years. It protects us from dealing with that stuff because resurrection is in the future it's tomorrow. It's like the ultimate uh, procrastination, <laughs> right? It's like tomorrow we'll deal with it or tomorrow Jesus will deal with it. So I don't got to deal with it today, right? And that in itself is a, that is taking resurrection and stripping it of all its power. And this is why Paul says, if this is the way you think about resurrection, your faith is useless. It hurts, <laughs> right? For, for Paul, the guy who gave them their faith to stand in front of them. Well, he sent a letter. He didn't stand in front of them. But anyways, um, to tell them <laughs> that you've completely missed the point. And what we find is that it's very easy in Christianity to say, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this, to have like the list of doctrines and be like, got it, we're good, and completely miss the point, to not necessarily understand it or to actually believe it within ourselves.
by creating this intellectual distance from resurrection, we give ourselves permission to stay the same. And this has shaped the way that we invite people into Christianity as well. Like one of the most prevalent questions when it comes to Christian life for centuries has been, how do I get to heaven? The question has been, is there life after death? But I would challenge that rather than the gospel, rather than Jesus, rather than Christianity being about heaven, being about life after death, resurrection is about life after life after death, (laughs) right? Not life after death, but life after life after death. That in fact, there will be a redemption of everything that is here. In Revelations, they talk about the new heaven and the new earth, and there's this collision that happens and nothing will be the same. And it's gonna happen here. When heaven is no longer the end goal, then our trajectory starts to change. If heaven is the end goal, then the rightful question you should ask is, well, how do I get there? (laughs) But if resurrection is the end goal, then my question then becomes, how do I get to this new creation? How do we make this transformation happen? How do we participate in resurrection? And in that, in that we take resurrection away from the realm of the mystical, right? Because keeping it up there strips it of its power to transform our lives. Theology that forsakes the physical for the spiritual and the like intellectual and philosophical, if it's not happening right here, then we're robbing the gospel of its holistic redemptive power that it can actually change everything, every single part of us. C.S. Lewis says um, um, that talking about the afterlife is like a signpost pointing into a fog. We don't know what's going on. (laughs) It's, It's confusing and it's messy and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? But if we focus on that, right? We get to kind of blind ourselves to all the stuff that's happening around us. I talked about this a couple sermons ago. Hope you were there. Um, In which we as humans, we like to look off across the chasm and say, when I get there, everything will be okay. When I have that job, my life will be fine. When I'm in this relationship, I'm going to be happy. When I get married, when I have children, when I go to church, blah, 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 all these things. And we think that the answer is over there, but what it's doing is actually blinding us to all of the stuff that's going on around us. It's blinding us to the ways that we've let our relationships crumble. The ways that we take part in ugly, oppressive systems. It allows us to look forward so that we don't have to look at ourselves. Uh, N.T. Wright is a theologian, a New Testament scholar, um, an author. 
And he highlights this idea in his work. He says, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the beginning of Acts, nobody is saying, Jesus raised from the dead. Therefore, there is life after death. Therefore, we're going there. They say, Jesus is raised from the dead. Therefore, he really is the Messiah. Therefore, he really is the Lord of the world. Therefore, God's new creation has begun. And therefore, we have a job to do. It's what John 20 to 21 are all about. It's what Luke 24 is all about. It's this astonishment. The stuff has happened. And that means we've got to take this message out and make it happen in the world. It's about new creation. In other words, it's about Jesus' bodily resurrection as the beginning of the recreation of the cosmos. The resurrection of Jesus sparked something. In verse 20, chapter 15, verse 20, um, Paul talks about Jesus being our first fruit, his resurrection being our first fruit, which is what that means is that Jesus' resurrection is an example. It's a promise of what is to come for each and every one of us. Family, the thing that this tells me is that eternal life is not something that happens later. Eternal life begins now. Right? There's this, there is a victory. There's a victory that has happened here on the cross. When Jesus dies and rises again, what it's saying is that not even death can hold back the redemptive power of God. There is no pain, there is no hurt, there is no obstacle that can stop me from getting to you, that can stop you from experiencing this new, beautiful life. The battle is won. Death is not the final word. When I was um, in high school, I ran track. And I was a huge sprinter. I love sprinting. Marathons, ne never. <laughs> it's terrible. But one day they asked me to do a, like a couple mile run or something like that. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. And while training for this, you kind of have to keep yourself at a pace. Anybody who runs here, first of all, why do you? But that's a, that's a, different, that's a different discussion. Um, <laughs> running sucks. <laughs> now it's great. Um, but you know that if you're running a marathon, you can't blow everything out at once, right? You can't, if you sprint, you're gonna get pretty far and you maybe even be in first place, but you're gonna get gassed out immediately, right? And there's gonna be like a 70 year old grandma that's just gonna go trekking by you. She's gonna do great. Um, grandmas are amazing at marathons. Um, and what I found in this, I had to learn to kind of take that up. And I thought as I was doing it, it's like, okay, you run the race and you go, you keep this good stride. Nice, we're doing good, we're doing good. I'm a little tired, but we're doing good. And then you see the finish line. And instantly there was something in me that, that kind of like switched. I was no longer going at this nice pace. When I could see the finish line, I brought up all the reserves of everything I had left and I rocketed down and got fourth place. <laughs> um, but seeing, seeing the end, seeing that finish propelled me forward. It gave me fervor. 
right? Um, I love I love fantasy and uh, things like that. Game of Thrones is awesome. Um, and there's all these big wars that are happening, these huge battles and stuff. And then they see a dragon go overhead. And the people who are on the side of the dragon are like, yes, <laughs> finally, <laughs> this is great. And what do they do? They don't drop their swords. They don't drop their shields. And they're like, take care of it, dragon. No, they fight with even more fervor and resurrection is telling us that the battle is won. Resurrection is saying the horizon is there, that we will move from death to life. It does not end here, it goes there, but not so that we can be lackadaisical, not so that we can put all of our concerns to the future and set down our weapons and slow our run, but no, so that we fight for it, that we actually give everything that we have to bring that resurrection to us. I want to taste it. I want to feel it, right? That is the transformation that true resurrection offers. It's that spark. And I think that possibly Rather than resurrection being about life after death and rather than it being or more than it being about life after life after death, it's possible that resurrection is also about the possibility of life before death. That we could have a life that is so full and rich and beautiful that it survives even death, that it survives everything that this Freaking world throws at us. That all of the darkness, in the midst of all that, we can be honest about it. We can say, this sucks. <laughs> but there's beauty here. There's wonder here. There's something worth saving here. So let's, let's do it. <laughs> let's make it happen. All right. Um, one of my uh, favorite thinkers is uh, Peter Rollins. And this guy, uh, he's a theologian and author. He's a pyro theologian. Um, and uh, don't ask me what that means. Um, but he, um, he kind of has a bad rap with traditional Christianity. Um, and honestly, for good reasons sometimes. He says some really, really challenging stuff. Um, but I find that sometimes the way that um, like, different thinkers and theologians um, or orthodox theologians will approach him is in a way to kind of trap him, right? They'll ask some questions to be like, we're gonna prove you're a heretic right here, right? Which is what they did with Jesus over and over again, mind you, but that's a different, that's a different story. Um, and they come to him and they say, Peter, <laughs> uh, uh, Sir Rollins, he's also very Irish. I would do an Irish accent here, but I will, I, you don't want it. <laughs> you don't want it at all. Um, and they ask him, do you deny the resurrection? And this is what Peter says. I love it. He says, without equivocation or hesitation. I definitely practice how to say equivocation. I just want you to know. <laughs> it, was, it was a journey. <laughs> um, equivocation, it might be equivocate, whatever. Um, or hesitation, I fully and completely admit that I deny the resurrection of Christ. <gasps> this is something that anyone who knows me could tell you. And I'm not afraid to say it publicly, no matter what some people may think. 
I deny the resurrection of Christ every time I do not serve at the feet of the oppressed. Each day that I turn my back on the poor, I deny the resurrection of Christ when I close my ears to the cries of the downtrodden and lend my support to an unjust and corrupt system. However, there are moments when I affirm the resurrection, few and far between as they are. I affirm it when I stand up for those who are forced to live on their knees, when I speak for those who have had their tongues torn out, when I cry for those who have no more tears left to shed. Wow, indeed. <laughs> He's saying that resurrection, to actually believe in it, means to participate in it, to draw it forward, to bring heaven to earth. Right? So we don't actually believe in the resurrection if it's just this future hope. That's not enough. We're robbing the gospel of all of its power. We're robbing it of relevance to our culture. The world is a mess right now. There are people with nuclear bombs and stuff. <laughs> it is crazy that I have to worry about that right now. Right? The world is not this perfect place. So our theology cannot be one that escapes from it. It has to be one that redeems it, that brings it to new life. The band, you guys can uh, come up. So there's this guy, young man. He meets a rabbi, uh, a Jewish teacher. And this teacher says, come with me. He's like, what? <laughs> He's like, no, come with me. And he, and he does. He drops everything. He leaves his job. He leaves his family. He leaves behind his entire life. And he's not entirely sure why. So what is it about this rabbi? What is it, what is it about this man that draws me so? That makes me want to forsake everything that I knew. I'm not sure, but there seems to be life here. There seems to be something good, something wonderful, something the likes of which I have never experienced before. So he goes and he walks with them for years. He learns from him. He watches him do miraculous things. He gives sight to a man blind. He cures someone of leprosy. He brings a girl back from the dead. It's crazy. And this guy is like, who is this man? What is this life? It's so sweet. 
And then this man is murdered, executed by the state. He watches possibly the most important person in his life get strung up to a cross. And the entire time inside of him, he's thinking, I, just any moment now, he's going to rip those nails out of his hands. He's going to jump down. He's going to shake stuff up. I've seen this man do incredible things. And then he watches a Roman shoulder stab him in the side, watches the blood flow, watches the light flicker from his rabbi's eyes. He watches his entire world crumble. And he cries, he weeps. They bring him down and he takes him and he buries him. He doesn't want to, but he needs to let him go because he's dead, right? Is he dead? And it's only confirmed when they roll the stone over the tomb. That's it. But he cries some more and he screams himself to sleep. The next day he cries and cries and yells and begs, yet nothing. And Saturday comes and he's got no more tears left to shed. He's empty. Life is suddenly meaningless. Death and desolation is the end of my story. I gave up everything for this. I lost everything for this. I, he doesn't know how to understand himself on Saturday. The world doesn't make sense. Or maybe it does. Maybe it makes sense in the sense that he just, death is it. This is all there is. Everything that we did, all of that was awesome, but it's over now. And he goes to sleep with no glimmer of hope. He goes to sleep thinking of tomorrow and his only thought is it's gonna be more of today. And Sunday morning comes, he hears a knock at his door. He goes, albeit slowly, but he goes, opens the door and there's a young woman covered in tears. And he says, what are you doing here? This is over, why are you here? She says, he's back. He's back. Family, sometimes this pattern of death to life lingers on death for way too long. And at times it's hard to imagine 
anything other than it. We live in a world where you turn on the news and you can experience death upon death upon death. You can go on Facebook and see death upon death upon death. Everyone that I talk to, there seems to be death all around us and resurrection seems so very far away. But the beauty of the gospel, the reason for this whole thing is that at this collision point of divinity and humanity, God looks at each and every one of us and he says this is not the end of your story. Death is not the end of your story. Let me show you. Come with me. And that, that's good news. Pray with me. Abba, Father, you are so so slow at times. God, there are days that I cry out your name and there is nothing. There are days that we pray for healing and hope in this world and it seems so far away. God, where are you? Why have you forsaken your people? Lord, I pray for our family today that as we yell these things, that we're able to open our eyes and see more. We're able to open our eyes and step into this new reality that we're able to look back and remember what you have done for us for the transformation, for the real life resurrection we have experienced. God, we need a reminder today. Lord, this world is aching for you. This world is begging for you, God. Lord, remind us Remind us here today, Spirit, that you have never forsaken us. That you have never abandoned us. But God, that you're calling us forward towards you. You're calling us forward with you. Lord, I pray that heaven, heaven intersect with earth in a way that we cannot explain. That we cannot explain away. I pray we feel a joy that doesn't make sense. That I pray that we overflow with the goodness of you, God. With hope and joy and resurrection that the rest of the world looks at us and says, surely they have seen something, surely. There is something there. God, we come to you weak. We come to you broken. 
We come to you as people who deny the resurrection every day, God, and we pray that you give us the strength to face that, to be honest with ourselves, God, to be vulnerable with you, the Lord of our life, creator of the cosmos, our father, our Abba, everything, God. Give us the strength to at least sacrifice it all, to relinquish all control to you. This world is scary. People fail us. Institutions guard their territory. But you, God, you will never fail us, Lord, and we need a reminder of that. Lord, I pray for resurrection today. I pray for spiritual, emotional, physical resurrection today. Lord, the, our bones are aching with trauma. Our bodies are marked by death, God. But I believe that there is life, that there is real, new life. God, give me just the strength to fight for it. Give me the strength to know I can't do it on my own to know that we can't do it on our own, God. But that you want to partner with us, that we are as responsible for resurrection as you. Lord, you're good. You are good, you are good, you are good, you are good. Change everything burn down the parts of us that need to be burned down. Cut out the parts of us that need to be cut out. Do not leave us the same, God. Do not leave us the same. We are tired of the same resuscitation over and over again. We are tired. We want new life. I want new life, God. Give us a freedom that lasts. Give us a love that can survive even death. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.